listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for May 2018. Today's episode is titled Culture of Prayer. In a world that increasingly embraces atheism and false paradigms of theism, prayer is largely viewed as irrelevant or, at best, simply a ritual to provide personal comfort. The purpose of organizations is to produce excellent work product. To do this requires sound spiritual reality in the hearts of all stakeholders. A culture of transparency and prayer is therefore essential. The only prayers that will be heard and answered by God are prayers aligned with His will and ways. And the only people who can offer prayers of alignment are righteous people, people growing and maturing in Christ. These people are not perfect, but over a prolonged period of time display evidence of consistent growth and maturity in Christ. This should be the standard by which all stakeholders are measured, because maturing in Christ is the predicate for individual and organizational excellence. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Patient Endurance. This morning we want to continue our study of the book of James, turning to James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, and talk about the the power, the efficacious power of prayer, or what what it means to have powerful prayer. So let me read the the text here. Uh, James 5, 13 through 18, in the ESV version, reads, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will, that's future tense, will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will, again, future tense, raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will, future tense, be forgiven. I stress that because that's an important part of the understanding of the verse. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three and three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit." Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve walked in the garden with the Lord at the end of each day of work, which for them was also a day of worship. Both work and time with the Lord was their means of personal relationship with the Creator. Now, as fallen people, we should express our personal relationship with our Lord and Savior in the same way. Each workday should be a day of worship, and at some point in the day, personal time with the Lord. Christianity is a comprehensive, life-defining worldview that addresses all activities in life. To live this worldview well requires regular personal communion and communication with the Lord. One of the key ways to enjoy personal time with the Lord is through prayer. To do this well, we must be in the process of sanctification, that is, maturing in Christ, which is the overarching theme of this epistle. For a true disciple of Christ, growing in Christ is not optional. It is imperative. The epistle of James is laser-focused on laying out the path of discipleship through obedience to the commands of Christ, which was given in the discipleship mandate 
and commonly known as the Great Commission. Clearly, James heard from the lips of Jesus many of his commands and was inspired by the Holy Spirit to continue elucidating these commands regarding how to live as a Christian. Up to this point in the epistle, the imperative mood has been used 49 times to express various commands of Christ. In this passage, James adds six more imperatives. So now, once we complete this passage, we'll have had 55 uses of the Greek imperative to stress and to elucidate and to clarify these commands of Christ. Now, certainly this is not a comprehensive list. This is just a partial list. It's a list that was relevant, particularly for those early believers, and we should find them relevant for us today. In reviewing the themes of the epistle to this point, one might readily note that there was little said about prayer. This is kind of surprising because in the early church, it appears that prayer was the most important thing. It was more important than music, more important than fellowship, more important than even communion and the teaching of the word. It was the big, big thing. It was it, Worship was really built around prayer, prayer. But in the book of James, we don't have any discussion about prayer until the end of the book. In fact, the word pray and its cognates don't appear until verse 13 of chapter 5. Prior to this text, prayer is only inferred through words such as ask and cry out. For example, we're mandated to ask for wisdom in, uh, wisdom in faith in chapter 1, verses 1, 5 through 8, and to ask for money with a right motive in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, and verses 13 through 17. And then in verses chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we have, it's, we have an automatic crying to God when managers abuse workers. So we have some allusions to prayer in, in the early parts of the book, but no specific reference to prayer until we get to chapter 5. And so this is really now a time to really see what James thinks about prayer. But his omission of prayer up to this point is not meant to minimize prayer. It's meant to point out to us that the stress of the book is on the sanctification of us as believers. Prayer is a big part of that sanctification, but there are a whole lot of other things too. And he obviously stressed the things first that he deemed were most important for those early believers to understand. So let's dig in here. Let's take a look at this uh, verse by verse. So chapter, chapter 5, verse 13 reads, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So we have two scenarios here, suffering and cheerful. The word translated suffering implies enduring hardship, like a person in military service. Certainly in those days with primitive transportation and communications, health care, and food preparation, military life was very difficult. But life for everyone in the first century was arduous. So James commanded these early disciples who were suffering hardship to pray. This reminds me of the Apostle Paul's mandate recorded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, which says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. As with James, Paul used the imperative mood to make his point. And you remember in the Greek language, the imperative mood is part of the grammar. So they use the grammar to stress something that would be a command. In English, 
the way we would stress a command is through our inflection, through our voice. So it's not so much part of the grammar, it's just more toward the, the language that we use. Whereas in Greek, it is part of the grammar. The second scenario we have here in the book of James is a word that means that's translated cheerful. Um, it refers to a state of joy and relief experienced when one is delivered from impending doom. Now, interestingly, this particular word only appears three times in the New Testament here in the book of James, and in Acts 27, it appears twice. The story in Acts 27 is the story of Paul on a ship bound for Rome, but the ship was caught up in a storm and appeared to be doomed to sink, which would most likely meant death for everyone on board. But God gave Paul a revelation that he was going to spare everyone, and so Paul encouraged all of them. Basically, and he uses this word here, to, and it's translated, take heart. Take heart, be encouraged. In other words, be cheerful, be joyful, because you're going to be saved. Such an interesting way to put that. But this imagery is then, it's designed to stress the, you know, what you should, how you should respond to a, you know, relief from a situation that looks very difficult and very trying. So in that kind of situation, you know, what we're supposed to do is, is to sing praise to God. Interesting, the word for the sing praise to God is the word we get psalms from. It's, so it's the idea of singing psalms and being joyful. And that's just another way of prayer. When you sing psalms, you, 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 you experience a prayerful interchange with the Lord. Uh, I have a good friend whose wife is very ill, and she's had some days when she's been very, very, uh, very, very much in pain and seemingly no relief. But when she would get relief, what he told me was she would begin to sing. And it was kind of annoying him. I said, you shouldn't be annoyed. That's exactly what she should do. There's been relief given to her. And the proper response, according to James, is to sing. So join with her and sing, rejoice with her. Now we have a third scenario where prayer plays in, in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So this is a scenario where you have a person who has, does not have sound health. Uh, the verb here that's uh, translated uh, sick is present tense, active voice, indicative mood, which in the Greek language, the present tense means something that's ongoing. It's an ongoing state. It's a current reality. It's a continuing current reality. The active voice implies that the subject of the verb is active in doing this. So in some ways, talking about us, us you know, being sick, but in reality, it's implying that we've had something to do with this sickness, with this lack of sound as health. And the indicative mood means it's a fact. This is a fact. It's, this is, I'm not giving you hypotheticals. This is not a what if. This is a fact. So he's given a very emphatic uh, directive regarding people that are suffering from some kind of sickness. Now, this sickness can be physical, mental, emotional, and or spiritual. And given the command of the sick person to call for the elders implies the sick person contemplated here is probably not ambulatory, meaning he's, he's probably in bed. He can't get up. So this is not just over some minor thing, I've got a headache, call the elders. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a situation where you are in bed and you cannot function 
anywhere close to what would be considered to be a normal, healthy, functioning person. So in that situation, you call the elders of the church who were presumably the leaders and presumably people who were walking with God. This means that as God's representatives, they were to pray for soundness of health in that person as they anointed that person with oil. And oil is, of course, symbolic of the Holy Spirit that can be used for energy, medicinal purposes, or ceremonial purposes. So it's hard to know exactly what the sense of the oil is. It could be any or all of those things. But certainly it's something that we have mandated, and so we should obediently do it, even though we may not fully understand exactly what James is trying to say here. Verse 15 goes with this, with verse 14. It says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, this is a very interesting way of expressing this. Uh, most of us, when we think about praying for someone, we pray, we're praying over them for healing. They're sick. And so we need to pray for their healing. But here it says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now I'm stressing all that those wills there to point out to you that all of these verbs here are in the future tense. Every one of them will save, will raise up and will be forgiven. There, these, these three verbs are all future tense. So there's a, very profound sense of future reality that you are praying for today. Uh, most of us today are in circles that you know, believe in healing. Well, I say most of us, many of us are. And so when we pray over healing, many times after we pray, someone will say, okay, has anybody got anything to say? Did, did you get healed? And we're looking for a testimony right then and there. And you know that that may happen from time to time, but That isn't really what James is contemplating here. He's pointing out that you do this prayer of faith in faith that the future will be realized. There'll be future healing. And he says, saved, he uses the word saved, which is the word sozo in the Greek language, which is the common word for saved. It's interesting how it's phrased. It's very different from how we would do that. So, when we think about faith and we think about the prayer of faith, we, what, is that, what does all that mean? Well, first, you have to understand that every person is a person of faith. There's a very profound sense of that. And James has already touched on this when he said faith without works is dead in chapter 2. What he's saying is you claim to have faith in something, but your life does not demonstrate it. That means you really don't have faith in that thing. So, There's a congruence that's necessarily required between faith and works. It's inherent, and you can't escape that reality. So that is true of everyone. But that's really not the sense in which he's talking about prayer of faith here. The prayer of faith here, I think, is in a prayer of agreement with the truth about God. It is a prayer based on the truth that God is sovereign over his universe and is an immutable, unchangeable creator who always works is working good in every situation. To pray in alignment with God requires metaphysical awareness of the character and nature of God that comes through years of growth and maturity in Christ. Peter refers to this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, which reads as follows. 
His divine power has been granted to all of us, to all of us, uh, things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us from his own glory or out of his own glory and excellence. You see, this prayer of faith is about releasing divine power and it comes through the knowledge of God. It comes from maturity, mature people. This is why you call elders to pray over you is because presumably they're mature people who have grown and matured into a knowledge of God. And now they're his agents to impart his divine power through prayers of faith that align with his will and his ways. Sadly, many times today, we are praying very narcissistic prayers, very self-centered prayers, prayers of alignment with our will and our ways. So those prayers are not mature prayers. They're not godly prayers. And those are not prayers of faith because real faith is faith in the veracity of God. Narcissistic prayers is all about manipulating God to do what, what we want and what we want God to do for us. I call these genie, genie in the bottle prayers. And by that, I mean, we think we could go and do some kind of religious thing that will make God, God happy. And that's like, you know, you know, pleasing the genie or rubbing the genie bottle and the genie jumps out of the bottle and says, you know, I'll grant you three wishes. What do you want? That's not the way it works. You know, prayer is not a magic pill. You know, if prayer were a magic pill, James would not have written all that he wrote. You wouldn't need that. If prayer were a magic pill, if God is just going to, you know, solve all your problems through prayer, you don't have to worry about how you live. Just live the way you want to live. When you have a problem, just pray and God will fix it. That is not Christianity. Christianity is a lifestyle of continuous transformation and alignment with God. And when you have some kind of malady in your life, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual issue going on in your life, you need godly men and women praying over you, praying alignment with the will and ways of God. Now, that is the way, I think, the proper way to prayer. If we don't understand prayer that way, we tend to get into narcissistic, self-serving, self-centered you know, prayers of trying to manipulate God in some way to do our will. And God's not into being a manipulator. Now, from there, James goes into chapter 16, or excuse me, verse 16, uh, to talk now more generally about prayer. He says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, this is a fascinating verse. You'll notice first the connection, therefore. He's drawing a conclusion. He's just talked about these uses of prayer, and now he's going to draw a more specific, you know, you know, conclusion here about how this should be practiced. And it's built around two key ideas. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So these are things that are not very common today. We're not into confessing sins to one another because that would be too self-revealing. And we're not into being transparent and honest. But we have a mandate to confess our sins to one another. And this mandate suggests we should do this openly. And I'm going to suggest even joyfully. Now, not to delight in the sin. I'm not suggesting that at all. But to delight in the transparency of the one making the confession. The word translated sin here is a compound word 
between two, two words that mean beside and fall. Sin is to fall beside the path. In other words, you're not on the path, you've fallen beside the path. So whenever you have a situation like that where you become aware, you become convicted that you have sinned, you've wandered off the path of obedience to God, you need to confess it. And you need to confess it now to godly people. That's going to be made very clear in the next two verses where he's going to talk about how important it is that that we are presenting this truth to righteous people. In fact, in this verse here, he talks about how the prayer of the righteous person has great power as is working. And in verse 17 and 18, he's going to illustrate that with a story from the Old Testament. So when you think about a righteous person, remember a righteous person is someone who's living out the reality of Christ in them and bearing the fruit of truly being a Christian. That is a righteous person. It's not somebody that just, you know, you happen to like, or so it's just not somebody in, in the body of believers that you were in. It is a person that's demonstrating the fruit of really knowing God and walking with God. So this is the kind of standards we have here. You know, I think today, many times people just think that uh, the anointing for prayer is just in the prayer. I would suggest the anointing for prayer is in the person. It's in the righteous person. That's the stress here. I want righteous people praying over me. And certainly, if you're going to receive the laying on of hands for some reason, that's an act of impartation. You want righteous people laying hands on you. You don't want anybody to do it. You don't know what's on them. So I, I personally, I'm very cautious about people that come up and want to pray for me and I don't know them. Or if they want to pray for me and I do know them and they I, I don't see much of Christ in them, I really would rather, you know, graciously decline. I want righteous people praying over me. So he illustrates the point of this, the power of a righteous person, the anointing is in the, in the righteous person in verses 17 and 18 when he talks about Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and earth bore its fruit. So this is very interesting uh, on, on a number of levels. First of all, these early Christians would have been very familiar with 1 Kings 17 and 18. They would have known the story immediately. And they would have also known that in that text, there's no mention of three and a half years. And for I, if you're looking for, you know, to, make, to criticize scripture, this is a way you can criticize it. But if you look at the New Testament, you see Jesus in Luke 4.25. He's the one that noted it was three and a half years. So here James is appealing to an Old Testament story that Jesus interpreted and said was three and a half years. He's taking Jesus's word as if it's scripture. So he's telling us right here, the words of Jesus are equal in, in their authority to the Old Testament scripture. It's a powerful message. It's one that you, you may not notice if you don't dig into this text and see what really is happening here. And it is not a problem for James. He just mentions it and he assumes that they get it immediately. And most of us read it and we don't get it at all without a lot of digging because we don't know the scriptures as well as these early believers did. And that's a sad testimony for us. All right, let's talk about some theological implications real quick, quickly and a couple points of application. 
First of all, prayer is an act of humility and submission to God. It is a means of communication and fellowship with our Creator, Lord, and Savior, with whom we have a personal relationship. But the purpose of prayer is not to manipulate God into doing our will, but rather prayer is a means of human alignment with God's will. Of the major worldviews that exist today, only Christianity offers prayer as a means of personal communion and communication with God. In all other worldviews, prayer is a ritual, an act that is required of non-personal gods who are not gods at all. Only a Christian worldview offers a personal relationship with the one true God. Prayer then for the disciple of Christ is a deep, intimate, personal, comforting, directing experience of communion and communication with our creator in accordance with his design and purpose. So that, that I think is a, a reflection of what James is saying prayer really is. Now, are there prayers that God does not hear? And are there prayers that God does hear? Well, I think we have examples of both. In fact, numerous examples. So some, some examples of prayers that, that God doesn't hear. Uh, Proverbs 28, 9, someone who does not know and obey the word. James 1, 5 through 8, someone who asking for wisdom but doubting the goodness of God. James 4, 1 through 3, someone presumably a professing Christian seeking money to use for their own hedonistic agenda. If you're seeking money to use it for your own pleasure, that is not a prayer God's going to listen to. Or how about 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, a husband who does not properly treat his wife. That will block your prayers. Now, prayers that God does hear, he will hear the prayers of an unsaved person who's living according to the light that he has. Cornelius, for example, in Acts 10. God hears the prayers of workers who are fraudulently abused by their employers. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 6. Excuse me, that is, first, that is actually James 5, 1 through 6. Uh, God hears the righteous, Psalm 34, 17, and Proverbs 15, 29. And the Lord hears the needy, Psalm 69, 33. So there are exa examples of scripture of how God hears certain prayers and he doesn't hear other prayers. Now, let me just say a couple of things about co confession. Uh, confession is an act of humility and submission. To confess one's failures to live according to the will and ways of God is part of a healthy lifestyle of a true follower of Christ. One does not confess sins before anyone. One confesses before righteous people, people who live as true disciples of Jesus. Coupled to confession is prayer for forgiveness. Though positionally, Christians are forgiven. Practically, disciples need to be cleansed daily of sins that are committed in the process of being sanctified. The mandate for daily forgiveness as part of the work of sanctification is stressed in what is popularly called the Lord's Prayer, where it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. By inference, Paul suggests that forgiveness is essential to growing and maturing in Christ. Notice words from Philippians 3.13 as expressed in the ESV translation. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. You see, I want to confess sins to release them so they do not hold on to me and I can run the race that God has called me to run. This is a key message of the SLA seminar is, you know, releasing the blocks so that we can run the race that God has called us to. 
Just a comment on mediating grace here. Over the course of my life as a follower of Christ, I've heard many people comment that the anointing is not necessarily on the person, but on the program or curriculum or music, etc. This view diminishes the value of the human agent you know, that God uses in delivering his will in a situation. I believe James would disagree with this common view. I think he would argue that human agents are important. For example, the human agents of efficacious prayer are specifically righteous people. This intimates that regardless of the healing need, emotional, physical, you know, mental or spiritual, righteous people will be the most effective at praying and facilitating alignment with God. Consequently, the spiritual condition of the agent is important. When one seeks the Lord's favor through prayer, one should seek prayer from righteous people. Clearly, the leaders of any healthy Christian community should be some of the most righteous people, and submitting to the authorities of the leaders demonstrates faith because God establishes all authority. Let me just synthesize this command here. You know, as we've gone through here and we've looked at all these imperatives, I've tried to synthesize, you know, these imperatives into some commands because we're told in the discipleship mandate, two basic things in making disciples. We baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and we train them to obey the commandments of Christ. So what are those commands? Well, there's just, there's probably hundreds and maybe thousands of them. And as you go through scripture, you will see them. So James has obviously given us a number here. So one way to synthesize the commands of this particular passage might be confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. You may or may not be healed in this life. This is the sovereign purview of God. If you're not healed in this life, you will be healed in the next. And whether you're healed in this life or the next, there is grace to walk in the will of God. There's always grace to walk in the will of God. You remember uh, when Paul talked about his thorn in the flesh that was not healed, you know, and he asked the Lord about this. And the Lord said, no, I'm not going to heal you because my grace is sufficient. So sometimes that's the answer. My grace is sufficient. So we've got to be willing to accept whatever it is the Lord wants to do in any situation. If there's physical pain and physical suffering, God is in it to work good in us for his purposes and certainly we are, we are mandated to pray for that, but we need to know this, whether we're actually healed of that physical malady or not is totally up to God, but we can be sure of this. If we're not healed right now, we will have grace to endure right now. So may the Lord give us grace to learn how to really pray efficacious prayers, how to live righteously so we can be instruments of, you know, of efficacious prayer and how to receive efficacious prayer how to confess and walk wisely in the community of believers so we can grow up in Christ and be the people we've been called to be and do what we've been called to do for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.